I'd like to start this morning by reading Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and we're in that Considering Temptation, part 2, we started this last week, and we're going to start in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution, and this was Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Think about what this situation would have been like. Persecution so bad that you and your family had to leave your home, your church, and your friends. Persecution at this level often meant you left in a hurried manner. There wouldn't have been a lot of planning or much time to pack all of your belongings. In most cases, there would have been no family to run to. The culture of the first century meant you lived much closer to your family and your extended family. It was very different than our culture now. Many of us have families that, and family members that live across the United States. It really wasn't the case there because they were much they, they lived in a much smaller area, a much smaller community. Imagine that scenario, running because of persecution, leaving extended family and friends, not sure where you were going to end up with the little resources that you were able to take with you. And to give this a little bit of perspective, I want us to read Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution, what persecution? the one we just read out about in Acts chapter 8, that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Now, we know where some of those refugees went. To us, it's not a big deal because of our modes of transportation. But think of this. Phoenicia was over 100 miles away. How long would it have taken them to travel 100 miles? Cyprus was 250 miles away and had to have an ocean voyage to get there. Antioch was over 300 miles away. Consider that travel time. Consider how you, the, a family would have traveled, being persecuted, not having much with them, and over weeks and months having to find a place to settle. Imagine at the end of that travel ending up in a city that wasn't anything like you grew up in. Pagan cultures that worship Baal, the fertility god. You have been alone. You would have been separated from your church and church leaders. There would be significant temptation to compromise with the culture just so you could fit in. There may have been other Jews living in these areas, and there were and probably other refugees, but it still wasn't home. It wasn't Jerusalem. It wasn't where you had spent your entire life. What would your heart be like in this situation? What would your heart be like? And then, in this situation, you hear that Pastor James has sent a letter. How excited would you be? My pastor has written a letter and has sent it out to all those who had to run because of persecution. How excited would you be, especially in that day and age? Connection 
with home, connection with your pastor? What's in the letter? What has he written? Maybe a little bit of light in all this time of trial. Maybe he's going to tell us what's happening back home. Maybe he's going to comfort us and put his arm around us. As the letter is read, you are somewhat surprised because you find it's full of very practical counsel on how to live out your faith every day as a Christ follower in a pagan culture. And then you learn something about the pastor that you love so much. His biggest concern is not how comfortable you are or in what you need physically or in what he can pray for you about. He is concerned about how you live in the culture of your new city. He's concerned about how you behave as a believer because he knows a person's behavior gives testimony to the validity of their faith. He knows that, and that's what he wants to address. And oh, what kind of insight we get into a pastor's heart even in 2023. Yes, pastors care for the well-being of their flock, their needs. Yes, pastors want to pray for their flock. But pastors who truly love their people, if they must choose one thing to do for their flock and only one thing because of the situation, it would be nothing more. It would be the only thing it would be was to help them grow spiritually. That's what a pastor wants to do. He wants to pray. He wants to comfort. He wants to provide for needs. But if he can't do anything else, if he only has the opportunity to do one thing, he is going to look at you and say, we need to talk about how you are spiritually. Because I don't have time to do anything else. And that's what we see James doing. A pastor wants his flock to become more Christ-like instead of more comfortable. He wants them to be, have more assurance of their salvation in difficult times instead of asking them for personal prayer requests. James wants his distressed congregation to understand true saving faith changes us so much that no matter our circumstances, we find ourselves responding to life in very specific ways. And this is true for all who claim faith in Jesus Christ, not just some. All Christ followers, every believer will find themselves growing in their ability and desire to count trials as all joy in a sin-cursed world just like their Savior did. Every Christ follower is going to be walking down that path. God is going to grow them as they walk down that path. Just like Jesus Christ, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, talking about faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, who counted it all joy to die for us. He did. What kind of trial was that? And it's not just the end result of being on the cross, but think of the 30 plus years before that, a perfectly holy, righteous God living in an imperfect, sin-cursed world with sinful family, sinful friends. And he endured all those trials yet without sin, and he counted it all joy for you and I. Amen. Growing in our ability to respond to the world like Jesus Christ becomes a test of true saving faith. And so that is why we are studying James's letter. 
We also need to know how to behave like Christ followers in a pagan world so our faith will grow, so we can be assured of our faith, that our faith is genuine when it does grow, so that we can be a light for the gospel just like Jesus Christ was. And so far we've seen that James doesn't waste any time in this letter. He immediately jumps to his point with his dispersed flock. Believers count it all joy when they encounter various trials God brings into your life. And he says, because they are beneficial. And this is what we've learned so far. These trials test the genuineness of our faith, strengthen faith, develop spiritual endurance, measures one's faith, helps believers to become more like their Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what the trials are in your lives. And then he encourages them and us with the truth that God promises to provide the wisdom that we need to live and respond to trials in the right way. And then he lifted our minds, we saw, toward heaven by revealing that responding to trials well has a promised eternal reward, which is what? Anybody remember? The crown of life. And then last week we saw James being very clear. He doesn't stop with just the trials. He, he moves right, right on. He makes it very, very clear that the trials God puts in our lives to grow and mature us in our faith, all of them have the potential to become temptations. Every single trial God brings into our life, puts there for our growth, for our benefit, has the potential to become temptations in our lives. What is a temptation? A temptation can be summed up as an enticement to sin and evil. Just because we are saved doesn't mean we will not be tempted to choose to walk in sin and evil. During trials, this is how a trial becomes, uh, leads us or can potentially become a temptation. During trials, we begin to doubt God's faithfulness to bring us through the trial. We begin to doubt God's goodness. How could a good God bring this horrible thing into my life? We begin to doubt His love because a loving God would never put me through this. You see, that's temptation, isn't it? That's a a place that, how many of you have gone there? We know now that trials are always a benefit, but how many times have we assigned it as being something that God should not have done to us? And then there's Satan who rules the world we live in. He and his demons come alongside us and use the world and its pleasures to feed that evil enticement, that temptation that we have. The world says it's not fair. The world says what God wants is outdated and narrow-minded. The world says to do whatever you can to escape the difficulties of the trial any way you can instead of facing them with a steadfast, faithful heart. They walk right alongside of us and say, here, let me show you how you really should think about this instead of how James says we should think about it. Why did James want his dispersed flock to think about temptations right after writing about trials? Because he wants them to be prepared to identify and deal with the temptations that he knows they're going to face. He doesn't want them to be blind to the fact that this is where so many trials lead our hearts, or how we look at trials. We all need to consider this. To live is to be tempted. I'm going to say that again. I'll change one word. To breathe is to be tempted. No one is exempt 
saved or unsaved. And Paul makes this clear in the first part of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation. So what temptations does this include? Every one that you have ever faced has overtaken you that is not common to man. You have never experienced a temptation that another person sometime in history, sometime in your neighborhood, sometime in your life has not already been tempted in. Because all the temptations that we experience as human beings are common to mankind because of our sin. Consider that even our Savior Jesus Christ was tempted during His life on this earth. Think on this sometime. Jesus was led into this wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted. Jesus Christ was led after His baptism by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, just like we are. It was a planned part of his life. And James knows this, and so he comes alongside of his dispersed flock and lays out some temptation insights designed to help them and us identify temptation and help us deal with them in a right way. We covered two of those, oh, those insights last week. First one we looked at last week, God is never the source of your temptation. Let that sink in. God is never the source of your temptation. Look at verse 13, James chapter 1, verse 13. James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. He says, let no one say command. Don't go there. Never allow your mind to go there. Never allow your heart to go there. Let no one ever say, let no one ever even consider or even hold in the back of your mind that God is tempting me. James bases this principle on the character of God. It is impossible for God to tempt others to evil because God Himself is incapable of being influenced by evil. If God could tempt us to evil, then He would have to delight in evil, which is impossible for God to do because God doesn't just do good. God is good, and He would have to become something He's not to tempt us with evil. The second temptation insight, which was something that we don't like to think about, you are always the source of your temptations. You are always the source of your temptations. I like how one of my favorite pastors, Philip DeCourcy, puts it. He puts it this way. James wants us to understand that we make the choices that lead to our destruction. How often, he says, do we hear, it's the woman you gave me, it's the ghetto I grew up in, it's, the, it's how you made me, the parents that raised me, the society that failed me. All these things are the reason why I respond to my temptations. And James says, uh-uh. And it's black and white. There's no other way to take it. There's no gray in that statement. James is so very clear in verse 14. We cannot blame our falling into temptation on anyone else but ourselves because we 
All are the source of our temptations and the evil desires that rear their ugly heads from within our hearts. Not all of our desires are evil or sinful. A desire becomes evil if it's contrary to God's law and God's will. Not all of our desires are evil. We'll talk about that here in a few minutes. James eliminates the blame game from your life. Okay, so anytime you understand you sin, anytime you fall to a temptation, you need to just be quiet, walk to the mirror, look in the mirror and say, it was your fault. Period. That's it. We are never the victim when we fall to temptation. We are always the villain. Consider that. We are never the victim when we fall to temptation. We are always the villain. And what does our world teach us? We are all victims. Every day we will be tempted to respond to whatever trial we are in in an evil manner because our sinful selves desire to view our trials as inconveniences, as being unfair, as being unnecessary, as being something we want to run to and hide from. And it will be an everyday battle to fight against these evil desires and to see our trials from God's perspective as being gifts from Him to us. If you want to consider these two insights further, you can find it in last week's sermon. Uh, It's posted on our website and on our Facebook page. You can go back and look if you missed that sermon. And this morning, we're going to continue where we left off with with additional temptation insights. But before we do that, I just want to make sure that we just put this all together in our minds. So let's all stand for just a minute. And we're going to read James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 just to set that whole context that we've been talking about. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. It's on page 1,288 of your pew Bible. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away for the sun rises with his scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fail and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. Now he switches his topic here. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. 
Do not be deceived, my brother, beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. Thank you. You may be seated. As we just said, the first insight, God is never the source of your temptation. The second insight, uh, you are always the source of your temptation. And the third insight he gives us, the process, the third insight is he gives us and outlines for us the process of temptation. Praise God, James shows us how temptation moves our desires towards sinful disobedience. Is that something we need to know? We need to know, how does a desire turn into death? And that is something that we deal with because we're all going to deal with temptations, right? So we need to understand this process. We all know sin, evil desires, temptations often seem to show up so quickly, so quickly that sometimes we just kind of look around and say, how in the world did I get here? We don't even remember going through this process. I'm going to give you the classical one, okay? Because we all have got this one beat. This temptation never shows up in this church, I know. When you are on the freeway and you are stuck behind somebody who is going less than the speed limit. Is that a trial? How many of you think that is a trial? All right, most everybody here. Okay, so if you think that's a trial... How quickly do you fall into the temptation of being angry and mad at the person in front of you? How quick does a process happen? Boom. I mean, it's from, in one minute you are praising God on the radio because you're listening to Caleb, and the next minute you forgot about the song you were singing because you are now being tempted, and this person needs to get out of my way. Sometimes, though, temptations are... These desires and temptations take some time, don't they? We actually go and we can actually track this process. But no matter how quickly it happens, there is a process. So the first part of this process, temptation starts with the desires of the heart. Temptation starts with the desires of the heart. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. God has created all of us with the natural ability to desire. In many ways, our own lives depend on the natural God-given desires we have. We desire a partnership that leads to marriage, don't we? And that marriage leads to what? Children, which propagates what? The human race. That desire is needful for us. We desire shelter and clothing that protects us. These desires can be in God's will and can also move to a place where they are not in God's will. These desires are not bad or evil until they are corrupted by sin. And since we by nature are sinners, it is easy for our desires to become something they were never intended to do by God. Instead of thinking of sexual intimacy in the marriage uh, as being restricted to marriage, designed to procreate, We see it as just something that we can do because it fits our lifestyle and it feels good and it makes us feel important. How about shelter and clothing? Can those God-given desires turn into something that God never intended them to be? How big of a shelter do you need? 
How big does your house have to be? How much do you want a new one that you will put yourself in hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt when you really don't need it? Has that turned into something that God never intended it to be? How about clothing? How many people today, teens especially, you live for clothes, for how you look and how others perceive you, and you buy with what the culture says is right or what the culture says is wrong, no matter what God says. It's, it's a good desire to be clothed. I'm telling you that right now. But it's not a good desire to be clothed like the world wants you to be clothed. That is something that God, that your temptation, that your, has turned into a sinful desire and to become something that God never intended it, that your identity comes from your clothing. Any desire can become evil, an evil desire when it desires something God doesn't want you to have or do. We also need to understand that there are desires that are never in God's will for us. Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. How many of us have in our years desired to do something other than that? Did God ever provide a way for that to be good? No. Thou shalt not bear false witness. I know that none of us here have done that, right? We've never bore false witness against somebody. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Those are desires that we have because of our sinful selves that God has said will never be good. These types of desires are never God's will for us, but we find ourselves fighting them all the time, don't we? Different people fight different ones. But we all find ourselves fighting those kind of desires. Temptation begins with the desires of the heart. That's where it starts. Then after it has inflamed the heart to desire something that is out of God's will, temptation deceives the mind. Temptation deceives the mind. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So there's the desire. And look at the deception there. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. He's lured and enticed. When his mind is being tempted to look at something or be, to be deceived. If you're a hunter or love to fish, James is using words that are right up your alley. Lured is, this, the Greek word for lure here is a hunting word in the Greek that has the idea of enticing an animal out of its place of safety so it can be trapped and killed. That's what the, it means, to lure. And it was a normal thought. They, they knew exactly what it was. We're going to set a trap. We're going to, we're going to set something out here to, to lure that animal out of, a, out of his cave or out of his den so that we can capture it and kill it. We trick this animal into thinking that what's there is something that's good for him, but what's there is actually something that's going to do what? Kill him. The idea of the Greek word for enticing is the idea of fishing. It's like a fishing lure. Enticed is the fishing term in the Greek that has the idea of tricking a fish into biting a hook hidden within something that looks like food so it can be hooked and cooked. Both words lead us to see that temptation deceives our minds into thinking that we are what we are desiring is okay, that there is spiritual safety when there's actually spiritual danger. You see, that desire starts in our hearts. Our sin takes that desire and begins to turn it into something. 
And then we have this idea that begin to have our minds deceived about what really is happening. Notice there really isn't any action yet, right? It's all happening where? In your heart and in your mind. That's a process. It goes from your heart and it goes to being deceived in your mind. Our sinful flesh has begun to deceive us that the desire we have is good and tasty when in reality it is deadly and not in God's will. Eating is a natural desire that God has given and is in His will for us. But for some, that natural desire is enticed by our sinful flesh to become something that it shouldn't be, and we are deceived that eating whatever we want is okay, and it leads to all kinds of physical and health problems. But, but the temptation is to take something that God has placed in our hearts and is a good desire to turn it into something that it's not, and we deceive ourselves that it's okay to eat like that. It's just a little bit. It won't matter that much. And that is a lure, that is an enticement, and that is a lie. Sex is a natural desire that is God-given and His will for us. But for many, the sinful flesh lures them into thinking that sex outside of marriage is okay just this one time, or just in this way, or we didn't go all the way, or whatever the case may be. We have to understand that is not God's will, so that, evil, that desire has become something that is not good. It has moved towards evilness, and we deceive ourselves to say, it's okay. And then there's all kinds of things that can happen afterwards that we find out that it's what? Not okay, because our minds were deceived. Temptation presents itself as a box of chocolates wrapped with a pretty bow, enticing and luring our minds, deceiving our minds into thinking that what's in the box is good, when in actuality it is out of the will of God and therefore evil, but we cannot even uh, admit that to ourselves because we have had our minds deceived. Temptation begins in the heart and then deceives the mind, which then chooses to disobey It leads to the birth of disobedience. Temptation leads to the birth of disobedience. Our desire has fallen for the seductress of temptation. She has deceived our minds into believing that the desire we have is okay, even though it is outside of God's will. And that desire comes into the seductress's room of temptation, and sin is conceived, which then gives birth to an act of sin. Look at how this happens. Verse 15, Then desire, when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That desire comes into the seductress's room, and now everything that was internal and non-action becomes action. It gives birth to something. It gives birth to sin that becomes action. In other words, it gives birth to a willful act of disobedience. That desire that has turned to evil because of our sinfulness that has deceived our minds has now turned into action. Temptation begins in the heart and then deceives the mind, which then leads to the birth of sinful disobedience of God's will. And then we have to ask the question, what happens when disobedience grows up? Temptation leads to death. Look at verse 15, the last part again. And when it is what? Fully grown, it brings forth death. 
Again, Philip de Corsi put it this way, Desire is the parent, and this parent produces a child, and the child is sin. And then this child, this child called sin, produces another child, a grandchild, and that grandchild is death. That's the process. Remember, James is writing to Christ followers, so the death he refers to here cannot be spiritual death because our salvation is secure in Christ Jesus. And I am so glad that's true because I don't want my salvation to be in my hands because it wouldn't be there for long. I'm telling you that right now. In the light of the context of trials and temptation, James is speaking of the death that he's talking about is the death of our intimacy with God, death of our spiritual momentum, death of our effectiveness in ministry, the death of a trust from a friend or a spouse because of untruthfulness, the death of our witness to the world. All these things are death. And how many of you experienced death because of some of those things? How many of you experienced the death of trust that somebody you love no longer trusts you because you have allowed this process of sin to lead you in temptation which hurt them and now they will no longer trust you the same ever again. We've all experienced this type of thing. Sin is serious, even in the life of a believer, and that is why we must know, we must know how we are tempted to sin. We must be familiar with this process of temptation so that we can stop the process. The quicker we identify what is happening, the quicker we can stop the process. When we begin to have, walk this line, walk this process of temptation, when is the easiest time to stop it? When it's in the mind. Long before it ever becomes action. We need to be able to identify what's going on. We need to begin to identify when a desire of our heart is becoming something that God never wanted it to become. And then if we find out that maybe we've walked a little too far and we, we have begun to deceive ourselves, then we have a Christian brother or sister come alongside of us and put our, their arms around us and say, hey, listen, you need to wake up. You're going to a place you don't want to go. And we look at them and say, we know what we're doing. You see, that Christian brother and sister didn't show up just because they loved you. That Christian brother and sister showed up because God was trying to tell you, stop! Don't go any further down this road. But sometimes our minds are so deceived that that doesn't even work. What a comfort we find in what James writes here. Because he tells us very clearly, we can fight against the temptations that we will face. We can fight against the temptations that we will all face every day. And we're going to look at that more here in just a minute. So what we've seen now is James has given us three insights to temptations that will help us deal with them in our lives. God is never the source of our temptation. We are always the source of our temptation. And there's a process of temptation that we can look at to help stop us when we are tempted. These insights are heavy and can seem so much to bear. How many of you feel a little bit of a heavy burden on that? Understanding that, hey, listen, it's all my fault. That's a heavy burden to bear, isn't it? I can't blame God. I can't blame Satan. I can't blame the situation. I can't bl blame the, the, car, the mechanic who didn't fix my car right when he said he did. 
We can't blame any of those people. That's really heavy because who do we want to blame? Everybody else but us. And these insights are so heavy. And so James understands how heavy this, are, this is and closes this first portion of his letter to his struggling flock with wise words of encouragement. He understands this is heavy. Look at verses 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be kind, a kind of first fruits of His creation. What's He saying here? He's saying, remember what you know. Remember what you know. Go back to verse 2 for just a minute. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know. We need to have information. We know these things about trials. We know these things about temptations. And we need to remember what we know. And what does he want them to know? He says it there in verse 16. He says, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't, Don't forget what you know. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You know what he wants us to know? God is good. Period. He doesn't just do good. He is good. And everything he brings into your life is for your benefit. It is for your good. You know that. You know that. I know that now. Don't allow us ourselves to be tempted into thinking that, well, maybe, maybe it's not really true. You know, there's a little thing back in the back of your mind that says, maybe God's always good. God is always good, James tells his beloved flock. Don't be deceived by the world that says the trials you face are evil, unnecessary, and need to be run from as fast as you can. God gives good and perfect gifts that will never change, will never fade away. He says, take encouragement in this. And then he points out something that should always be an encouragement to us, should always lift our spirits, should always redirect our minds from the temptations and the trials and everything that's going on this earth. He says, I'm going to remind you of the best thing, the one good thing that God has given you that can never be taken away. And look at verse 18. Of His own will, He brought us forth. He birthed us anew. By the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first, fruit, first fruits of His creatures. He reminds them of the gift they've already received of salvation. The best gift that anybody can ever receive as a living human being on this planet. He says when you start feeling that the trials uh, are, over, are overbearing and it's hard to see, what God is doing, when you start having that, those feelings, the desires that are turning towards evil and temptations to, to respond to those trials in the wrong way, he says, you stop, 
Remember the process and you look to your salvation. Remember what God has saved you from and what He has saved you to. Remember that we're going to spend eternity with Jesus Christ. Remember that we are going to receive the crown of life. Remember we have an inheritance that is unperishing and unfaded. Remember your salvation. Turn your face, turn your head from the horizontal and look to the salvation that you have in heaven. He says, that is what I want you to understand when it just seems to be overwhelming, when you have to understand that you cannot blame God and you have to blame yourself. He goes, you remember your salvation. And then he reminds them very quickly, we're just going to look at them very quickly, how that salvation came to their life. How that salvation came to their life. Of his own will, God brought that salvation by his own will. It was His doing, not ours. And then it says, He brought us forth. What is it? What did God do? A new birth. He brought us forth. How does this new birth happen? By the word of truth. By the word of truth. Which is what? God's word. The word of truth. Why is this done? That we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. So they could be the first fruits of a tremendous harvest that was going to come as the gospel spread throughout the world. He goes, remember, that's what your salvation, he did it. He brought you so that you could be a first fruits of this tremendous harvest that is going to praise God for all of eternity in heaven, saying, holy, holy, holy. And we say what? Amen. So let's reflect on a couple of things here. Temptation is a fact of life and will be until we breathe our last breath. The battle is real. It is never ending. And you and I must always be aware of the danger. However, God does promise us this. The last part of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. But listen to this. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability But with the temptation, he will always, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's a promise. The problem is sometimes we give up before we ever see the door. Sometimes we use like, it's just been too long, or uh, I'm just too mad, or whatever the case, and we just give up and we go straight down that path of temptation. Instead of stopping and saying, I need to look for the door. I need to wait for the door. Because God will provide a way for me to respond to this trial in a way that doesn't turn into temptation. Temptation is a fact of life. And temptation, which we need to understand, is not a sin. Temptation is not a sin. How do we know that? How do we know biblically that temptation is not in and of itself a sin? Who else was tempted? Jesus Christ. Did Jesus Christ ever sin? No. So we can be faced with temptation, and the temptation is not a sin. Sometimes when we see the temptation come into our lives, we start beating ourselves up. Why am I thinking like this? Again, I'm having to deal with this. How many of you have been there? 
I'm just tired of dealing with this temptation. We understand they're going to be there because we are sinful human beings. But temptation is not a sin. What's a sin? What turns into the sin is when we respond to the temptation in a way that we're not supposed to. When we choose to sin, when we choose to go uh, have our desires the way that we want them outside of God's will, that's when temptation becomes a sin, when we act on it, not when we're faced with it. We know that temptation is not a sin. In Hebrews, we find that Jesus was tempted in what? All areas like we were. So, how do we deal with temptation? How do we deal with temptation as we close this morning? If you're looking at your notes and going, I don't have that on my notes, turn it over. I couldn't fit it all on one page. I'm sorry. How do we deal with temptation? First and foremost, you will never, ever have success in dealing with the temptations in your life until you have God's help via the Holy Spirit living within you. That's it. You will never win. You will always succumb to the temptation. You will never get better. And if you're saying that is my life, then I want to let you know right now that that can change today. And I would love to tell you, after church, sometime this week, I'll sit down with you and tell you how you can deal with the temptations, first and foremost, by being saved. Secondly, know God's Word. You don't know what God's will is until you do what? Read His Word. You don't know what sin is. You don't know what right desires are and wrong desires are until you know what? God's Word. And so many people say, I struggle with temptation so much in my life. And the first question I'll ask them is, are you saved? Yes, I'm saved. Are you sure you're saved? Yes. And we'll go through all that whole process. Then I say, how much time are you spending in God's Word? Well, you know, I've been real busy. And then I have to be a pastor like James. And I have to look at them and I have to say, you want to know what? You're never going to win. You're never going to get better until you're in the Word. Until you're reading it. As it says, Thy Word have I hid in my heart that I might not what? Sin. It's not until I know God's Word that my life will begin to stop these temptations in their tracks when they are in the mind and in the heart. Thirdly, respond to trials correctly. Respond to trials correctly. Do we know how to do that now? Do we know what's expected now? Who has to choose to do it? You. You have no excuse now. Go back up to number two because you know God's Word. There is no excuse. You know exactly how God wants you to handle the trials that He brings into your lives. How He wants you to respond to them. And then we also know that Fourthly, we have to pay attention to the desires that we have in our hearts. Sometimes we just get really, really dumb because we just live life day in and day out and we never look in the mirror and say, what desires are in my heart? What desires are starting to go down a path that are not supposed to be there? And I'm going to tell something right now. I'm going to talk to the youth in this room for just a minute. If you are having friends in your life 
that are tempting you and, and, and placing, uh, making you want to have a desire, or move that desire to something that God's will never wanted you to do, you need to what? Get away from those friends. Period. If you have a boyfriend or girlfriend and they are tempting you to do something that God doesn't want you to do, you need to leave. It needs to stop. And whose choice is that? Yours. Because you'll never point your finger at your friends. You'll never point your finger at your boyfriend or girlfriend and say, if they hadn't done that, I wouldn't have done this. We already know that's not going to work. So pay attention to desires. Here's something else. Stop the blame game. Stop the blame game. Anytime you begin to say or think or feel that I wouldn't have done this because of this or because of that or because he or she did that, you need, it just needs to choke in your throat. You are having problems in your life. You are not responding to God in the right way. You are struggling in your life, even to the point of sometimes people struggle so much that they consider suicide, they consider all this kind of stuff. All those things are yours. You own them. It starts here. Stop the blame game. Don't point at your family. Don't point at your spouse. Don't point at your friends. Don't point at the person who is driving slow on the freeway. It is your responsibility. Period. I like this one. Run. If you know there are desires that are starting to turn into, te into temptations that you know God doesn't want you to do, then you need to leave. You need to run. You need to turn tail and not stop. Stop playing the line. Because we'll never, ever grow in our ability to handle temptations and stop that process if we flirt with, with temptations and evil desires. It's not going to happen. You will lose unless you run. Be attached to a body. Because when you don't see it, somebody in the body that loves you will. And it's their responsibility to walk alongside of you and say, we need to talk. And I want all those people, everybody here to understand, if you see somebody going down that process of temptation, and you see it, and if you do not tell them about it, if you do not walk alongside of them, then you are wrong. You're wrong. You care more about your feelings and your being comfortable than you are about talking to them about where they're going. You cannot tell anyone that you love them if you are willing to let them go down that path of the process of temptation. If you look at them and say, I love you, and you don't approach them, you're lying through your teeth. Because you're saying, go ahead and be tempted. Go ahead and play with the danger. Go ahead and play with things that can cause all those things of death in your life that we have seen already. Will some of them get mad at you? absolutely will some of them want to turn around and walk away from you absolutely but what can you stand before god and say i love them 
like you loved me. Because he's walking along each of us right now with his arm around us and saying, let me show you through my word how to handle temptations and how to handle trials. God is loving us, and we need to love others in the same way that he has loved us. And then here's one that we often forget. Confess and move on. How many of us here are going to fall because of temptation? How many of us are going to do that? Every single one of us. You're not immune. You will never get to a point where you're perfect. It's not going to happen. And sometimes that guilt can lay on us. Sometimes we can feel shame, which is a good thing. That guilt and that shame is appropriate because if we're where we're not supposed to be, should we feel that? Absolutely. However, when we begin to have the Holy Spirit guide and direct us, when we don't feel well because of the sin in our lives, because of the temptation that we're going towards, then we need to step back, confess before the Lord, Lord God, I am sinning here. I am sinning against you. I am allowing these uh, desires to become something that you never intended. And Lord God, please, I need your help. Lord God, I am sorry. Lord God, please forgive me. And what does he promise? Are you forgiven? Is the sin as far as east from the west? Do you need to feel guilty about it any longer? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And sometimes we don't do that and we just wallow in the sin that we know we've done and we just, oh, how can God love me? Oh, I'm I'm not one of His really good ones. You know, I I, I just barely have salvation. We... I hear people say that. No, confess. And then it's done. And we learn. And we grow. Just like God wants us to. So, looking in the mirror. This is really easy this week. You want to know why? The list that we just went through? That's our looking in the mirror this week. Be saved. Do I know God's Word? Am I learning to respond to trials correctly? Am I paying attention to the desires that are moving to where they shouldn't? Have I just blamed somebody for a sin that I fell to? And can we all go down that list and look in the mirror? Yeah. Look in that mirror this afternoon, tomorrow. Go before God and lay these, these, this list out before Him and say, Lord God, I'm looking in the mirror and I don't like where I see myself. And then move to the last one. Confess those sins and get up. Correct the things that you need. Maybe you're not attached to the body like you need to. So you, you start attaching yourself to the body. You, you build strong friendships and strong relationships at Sardis Baptist Church if you're a member here. And you give people the permission You look at them, and you say, Brighton, I really wouldn't say this to him, Brighton, you have permission to keep me accountable. But you want to know something? That's a two-edged sword. Brighton, that means I can keep you accountable. That's what it means. And so we're done with this section of James. How have you liked James, the first 18 verses so far? (laughs) Remember, there are 60 commands and we've only been through like six of them but that's why james is so practical because it just drills down into our lives and opens those parts of our lives that we don't want to be opened and then we 
get to see what God's word says on how to deal and live in a world that is pagan in the way that God wants us to. And I hope and pray that you will all not leave because this first part has been so invasive into your life. It's not going to stop, by the way, but we can learn a lot through this. Please bow your head. Father God, we bow before you, each one of us here this morning, and we ask that you move our hearts, move our minds to think through, to contemplate, to reflect on what your word has taught us over the last two or three weeks about trials and temptations. And Father, help us to start dealing with those up front at face value. Father, give us the strength. And Lord God, put somebody in our lives, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a close friend, that we can ask for help from so that they can walk through the looking in the mirror with us and help us come to you in confession. Father, we at Sardis want to impact our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, that will be hindered if we do not handle trials and temptations in the right way in our lives. Lord God, help us to work hard, not for our glory, but for your glory and for the sake of the gospel. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.